So I tell people like, if you're really interested in making money in this business, maybe dip your toe in with a deal or two if it's really conservative, but what you really should be focused on is getting ready for the next cycle to come. So really get educated, make your connections, you know, make connections with brokers, make connections with investors, make connections with all the people that you possibly can and, and build that infrastructure now while the chances are you're not going to be finding many deals that are good anyway, right? Use that time productively to prepare for the next go round because there will be one. I mean, there, there always is, no matter how bleak things look right now, yeah. it will always be better. There's just, it's just a matter of time. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hey, our sponsor for the show today is Pine Financial Group, the leader in hard money lending in Colorado and Minnesota. And they were recently approved to offer their investment publicly. This investment offers only for investors in Colorado and Minnesota and is only made through their investment prospects. Get your copy today. Simply visit www.pineinvestments.com and click to get started. Look, there's a reason why some of the wealthiest people in history invest in loans backed by real estate. Learn more about the risks and returns at www.pineinvestments.com. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me today, I have Jonathan Twombly. Jonathan, how are you doing today? I'm great, Todd. Great to be on the show. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on a little bit about uh, Jonathan. He's the president managing member of Two Bridges Asset Management LLC. Uh, before founding Two Bridges, he was a partner in the real estate investment firm TRB Investment Group LLC. Uh, and he began his career as a lawyer, spent over a decade practicing the American lawyer top 100 firms. We are focused on real estate and hospitality member matters. Um, with that said, Jonathan, why don't you give our listeners a little bit more about you, uh, your background, and then what Two Bridges Asset Management is doing today? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I spent a bit more than a decade on uh, practicing law on Wall Street. I mean, we call it Wall Street. It wasn't actually on Wall Street, but like Wall Street firm is what we say in New York City for the big firms. I did uh, mostly litigation matters there, although at the end of my career for the last five years, I was working on almost exclusively uh, real estate-related litigation matters. So I was kind of seeing deals when they fell apart, kind of picking, you know, seeing how they worked from the inside once they came apart and people were fighting with each other. Um, but I had really had a long interest in getting out of being a lawyer and getting into some kind of investment field. So uh, when I became a victim of the financial crisis in 2011, I was kind of fortunate to be in a position where I was able to finally stop practicing law and go pursue something else. So I joined up in my, my first investment firm, did that for a couple of years and then founded Two Bridges in 2013. And Two Bridges is a syndication firm. We focus on uh, buying multifamily assets in the Southeast. So, everything we've owned up to this point has been in South Carolina, but we'll look in other markets in the region. You know, we like that area because it's very fast growing. And for me, it's easy to get there from New York where we're based. So I like that market. Um, and we recently actually sold our entire portfolio. So we're kind of gearing up for round two um, and you know, looking to continue to bring investors on to the platform who were, you know, ready to get in at the ground floor of the, the beginning of the next cycle, whenever that happens. So John, a couple questions I've got about, well, first of all, you've sold your portfolio. Um, so I've got a question on, you know, how, I guess first, before I get to the second question, how did you talk to your investors about, we're going to sell everything. And you haven't bought anything yet, at least that I know of, correct? We bought anything since then. Since then, right. Yeah, right. yeah. no, we haven't bought anything. We haven't bought anything for a couple of years because, you know, we've been in a situation where we started, we started finding the market being really overpriced, well, really as far back as 2016, okay. you know, where, where I was making offers on prop, like getting stuff off market from brokers and 
making offers that I, you know, I remember scratching. I knew I had to scratch a little bit, you know, to get deals even at that point. And I started sort of stretching my underwriting to the point where I was feeling really uncomfortable. And my, uh, my first thought was, you know, I've submitted an LOI and my very first thought would be, Oh my God, I hope they don't accept that. And mm -hmm. then, and then, um, the answer would come back, like, you're nowhere even close, like you're 20% off what they're looking for. And when that started happening, I, I just started feeling like, okay, this market has really gotten away from me and I'm going to kind of take a little more of a wait and see attitude. Honestly, I did not expect that in 2019, I would still be taking a wait and see attitude. So I'm very surprised by where this has gone. Um, I, I kind of think with every passing day that just brings us closer to a correction, but obviously don't know when that date is. But, but to answer your question in terms of like my investors, you know, when I said to my investors, um, Hey, we're going to sell, uh, they were all happy. And I'll tell you who was the happiest. The happiest were the investors on the deals that weren't doing that well, because we were, uh, you know, on, on a couple of deals, we had just really missed on the underwriting. Um, you know, it was, it was strange. We were getting, we were getting more rent growth than we expected, but we were also having a lot more expense growth than we sure. expected. Like labor costs going through the roof, you know, insurance going through the roof. Plus, you know, we had these older properties that were just having all this CapEx come up and, you know, we hadn't adequately reserved for all of this unexpected CapEx. And yeah. so we had properties that just weren't paying our investors that much money if, if in one case, nothing. And, but the pricing that we were being offered was so good that our investors came out well at the end because of the run up in the market. Right. And so like, I can't take credit for that. I can't take credit for the market going up. That's just, that just made me lucky. I think yeah. what, but where I, what I will take credit for is saying like, okay, I'm, I'm going to take the chips off the table now, right? I, I see this opportunity to, to do well by my investors and I owe it to them. So rather than think about like, oh, if I sell my properties, I'm not going to have any more properties left. I'm not going to have any doors to brag about. Like instead of thinking about that, I was like thinking about my investors and saying, how can I, how can I, you know, this is a great opportunity for them. Obviously I will make some money too. And I can, as I was saying before, create a track record for myself, which helps me grow my business in the future. But I, but I do feel like putting my money where my mouth is about where I think the economy is and where the market is and selling the properties at that point to help my investors benefit, that I, I take credit for. But you know, I, I can't take credit for the, the, the run-up in prices that nobody foresaw happening, including myself. So, so what, uh, you know, you, you started seeing the crack, not cracks, but you started to see the pricing being expensive, you said, in 2016. What made you wait until 2018 or 2019 to really sell the rest of your properties? Well, originally, you know, we, we had planned on doing a 10-year hold. Okay. I had planned on acquiring more property. I mean, it wasn't, I, I wasn't planning on stopping Sure. With 400 units. I mean, the plan was just to keep on growing at least, at least by, you know, acquiring another hundred, 200 units a year. You know, yeah. I wasn't trying to like get to, to 10,000 units in 10 years, but I, I did want to get up to a thousand, 1500 in a, in a few years. And, you know, thought I could do that kind of in a slow progression, you know, slow and steady wins the race, right. That sort of thing. Um, so I, I ha it wasn't really in my mind to, to sell until we we just you know started getting these offers thrown at us and then on on one deal that we had that really kind of like the dog of the portfolio the investor was very only had one investor in that deal very very patient but at some point you know we had this really horrible train of events at that at that property where we had like mold outbreaks because of a manager who was not doing her job we had fires, two fires in a month, like major fires that were caused by tenants in the, in the same month. And I think it was after the second fire, my investor said, like, I really just wanted, I'm, I'm just emotionally done with this thing. Just let's get out of it. And, you know, I counseled him to wait. I said, look, we're still, we're improving the operations of the property. I think we can do better and make more money if you, if you wait. 
which he did. But once he's once the seed was planted in my mind, and I sort of looking, sort of looking around, and then we're getting all these offers from left and right. You know, would you sell this property? Would you sell this property? Then I started thinking about sort of the things in the in the the bigger picture. You know, in terms of where the economy was and what we could do for the business and how the investors would benefit and whether we would ever see this kind of pricing again. And it all just sort of, sort of pointed in the direction of, of selling everything. And then there was one other thing, there was one other factor that was starting to bother me a bit. And that was that, you know, we've had, there's been so much rent growth over the last, you know, decade and, and, Wages haven't kept up. It's become more and more unaffordable for people. We're finally seeing some some wage growth now, really sort of right. the last year or two. But it really, I mean, we had we've had rent explosion for ten years, and we've only had you know wage growth for a couple of years. So people are like really far behind. We were already seeing a lot of problems. You know, we owned C properties, and we were seeing problems with rent collections, and you know, we were constantly working on improving the tenant base, but still, you know, we're talking about a, a tenant base that doesn't have a lot of cushion, right? Yeah. Even though they're, they're market rate properties. And I started looking at what happened in the last recession. And in the last recession, you know, obviously that was a real big one. It's not likely to repeat exactly the same way again, but when I kind of looked at who got hurt in the last recession, it was really, the tenants that we had, right? It's that the C-class tenants, those are the ones who really, you know, get hurt in recessions because they've got the jobs that are, are most easily cut, right? They're, if they're working in factories, they're working in retail, like that's where the companies are looking for cost savings, right? They're, they may be looking for cost savings among management to some extent, but they've also got like employees that they feel like they have to keep, they have to hold them through the recession because they're really vital to like the continuity of the business. But for people who are, lower down there, they just feel like those people can be traded in and out. Right. And, and right or wrong. I mean, what, how we feel about that ethically or whatever is a separate question. It's just the way that things work. Right. So, um, so those, those kinds of employees are the most vulnerable and we were, you know, based in a state that's really manufacturing dependent and in a region of that state, that's very manufacturing dependent, right. Very export manufacturing driven with automobiles, like really dominating. So when I started looking at that situation and thinking, well, if a recession happens, what's going to happen? Well, people are going to stop buying BMWs, right? If there was a recession, I mean, it's like, they're like, it just, it, the manufacturing and the service economy was, it's going to take the biggest hit. So I started feeling like, well, you know, all these, we've got these super generous offers coming our way. We've got one investor who just wants out. We've got the opportunity to make a lot of money, the opportunity to create a track record, and now we've got like the opportunity to get out of this before the the bottom falls out for this for our particular tenant base. You know, and, and look, maybe it won't happen, but I just in in assessing risks, right? I, I just felt like I had to think that way. Like I had to take the chance to sell now while the going was good, rather than miss the opportunity, then potentially get into a really bad situation where we were really having prob problems collecting rent because, you know, our tenant base in particular was hit hard. So I, you know, I always, I don't know, I mean, this is getting a little bit sidetracked, but I, I do talk to people a lot about, you know, if you're buying right now and you're buying C property and you're paying a premium for it, you're kind of setting yourself up for the worst case scenario where you're paying too much for the property and you're paying for, and it's populated right now, it looks really great by a population that's going to get hit the hardest yeah. when the recession comes. And that's just a recipe for disaster. Like to my mind, I, I'm happy to buy those properties again, but I want to buy them like after the crash when the market has been de-risked and I can pay, you know, I'm go, you know below that, that long-term mean, you know, I'm, I'm getting really generous cap rates and I can build in a real big margin of safety. But right now, like if anything, you've not even got a margin of safety. You've got like a safety deficit because you're overpaying for property. And if you stack on top of that, this marginal tenant base, then I think you're really asking for trouble. And if you're trying to take that C property and move it to a B and get into a better 
um, you know, sort of more stable group of tenants, that's fine. But then the risk you're taking on is that you actually finish your program before something bad happens, right? Yeah. You, you figure it's going to take two to three years to get through your renovation program. That's a long window, especially now. Like if, if that was, if this was 2009 and you said you're going to take two, three years, I'd say, oh, you got a really good chance that the economy is going to be humming in two or three years. In 2019, when we've been sitting at the top for a long time, I'd say you got a really good chance that the economy is not going to be humming in two or three years when we finish. So you're taking on a lot of risk. But anyway, that's, that's a little sidetrack there. So what are, you, what are you doing then right now to, because your goal is to continue to, to buy multifamily Absolutely. Later, later on down the road. Uh, yeah. You still fundamentally believe in multifamily, like the asset class, all that kind of stuff. So what are you, what's your plan? What are you doing right now to continue uh, moving the hamster wheel? Sure. Well, like I, I tell people all the time, people sometimes get confused because they think that I'm bearish on multifamily, that like I don't like the asset. Mm-hmm. I don't like where we are in the, I don't like the, the buying opportunity right now, yeah. but I think, I think that multifamily is still a really great asset to buy. So I'm very long-term bullish on it. I'm just short-term bearish on it. Right. So, um, so I really do intend to get back into the market as soon as the buying opportunities become better. So what I'm doing now is, you know, preparing for that eventuality. So I spend a lot of time, as you know, like on social media, doing podcasting, appearing on other people's podcasts, spending a lot of time in Facebook, you know, like in my Facebook group and other places, just trying to educate people. I run paid education programs. Like I'm doing a lot of stuff just to try to like educate people about what I think is happening, spread the word about the business. And I continue to take in new investors. So, you know, I still welcome people to come into the platform. I just usually have a conversation with them that says, Hey, look, you know, I'm looking for patient people. I'm not, if you're dying to spend money right now, for whatever reason, you have to invest money this minute. I've got a lot of good friends who are, who are good at this, who are still buying. I'm happy to make introductions to them. They have a different view on things. You know, it's great. I'm, I'm happy to pass you on to somebody else. But if you are a patient person and you, you kind of, you see the market the way that I do, mm-hmm. then join my platform and, will kind of spring into action when the opportunity is there. So I continue to build the business in that sense, even though we're not actively buying multifamily right now. I'm paid education programs where I go into a lot of, of detail about how to execute on deals, but also kind of think how to think about the market and, and things like that. Sure. Cool. Cool. Um, so what, what are you telling people that want to get started right now or maybe what's your advice? Somebody used to go and, Hey, I, I really, maybe they bought a couple buildings or they're just wanting to get cracking and really anxious to buy. What's your advice to them? I, you know, it's always tough because I don't want to destroy somebody's enthusiasm who, <laughs> who wants to, to break into this. Cause I do think yeah. it's a great business. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I also, want to say like, Hey, slow down there. Like there's, there's no rush. And, and especially if you're, you know, if you're like 25 or 30 years old, you have a lot of time in this, in this business to, to build wealth. Right. And so, but on the other hand, if you make a bad mistake now, you could be done right forever, yeah. either, either because you're discouraged or because you make such a big mistake, like, you screw up so badly that nobody's ever going to trust you again. Right. So yeah. what, so what I always tell people is I won't say don't buy, but I do say you have to be very, very cautious and you have to really understand what it is that say like the big players are doing right now, because they're the ones who are the most sophisticated. And when you look at what those people are doing, they're going into deals now with like very low leverage. Yeah. They're very defensive, right? They're, they're making all the worst case scenario assumptions. They're assuming something is going to go wrong and they're prepared to take very low returns because of that. Right. So, cause they're, they're not leveraging up, right. They're not, they're not making these huge rent growth assumptions or what have you. It's unfortunately though, that's sort of like the opposite of what a lot of the syndicators are doing. And a lot of when you're out there and kind of like, social media land talking about real estate and, and people who are first timers, like they're looking to, you know, they want to make a killing. They want to make it a killing fast. And I think what happens is that that leads to doing things like 
making a really aggressive assumptions, making deals work, quote unquote, you know, uh, putting a lot of leverage on, on deals in order to try to juice the returns. And all of those things sort of set you up for really for a disaster if you're not careful. So now it's really like when things look great is the time to be cautious. So things look fantastic right now. So now that's people should not assume that that's going to last forever. They should assume that that's going to end pretty soon. Understand that you're paying a premium for all the current good news and, and really be cautious. So really be looking at your downside risk more than anything else. And if you can find deals that, you know, where you're, you're truly conservative. I don't mean like the conservative in the way that like everybody is conservative. Every, I've never met anybody who says, you know what? I'm a really super aggressive, super aggressive <laughs> underwriter. Right. I make crazy assumptions. You know, <laughs> everybody's like, I'm a, you know, I'm a conservative underwriter, but then you look at their underwriting and you're like, okay, you no know, 5% we're, earned growth. Really? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Every year, you know, like you're going to, anyway, there's lots, there's lots of things that people do that are, that are not conservative. But I mean, if you really, you really are very conservative and you're really modeling like very little rent growth and you're modeling a lot of economic vacancy and you're, you're modeling high exit cap rates and you're yeah. doing yeah. low, low debt and the deal still works, then go for it. Yeah. Because you'll probably be, be okay, but you have to be prepared for the fact that you may go through a couple of years where you're not making very much money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you got it, if you're thinking about very long term that's fine, but you really, you really, really need to be cautious at this, at this stage. So that, that's, so that's what I tell people. I tell people now is a great time to learn. It's a great time to get prepared yeah. for what's coming. Yeah. You know, I, I, even though I got in pretty early in 2011, I remember just being, you know, by 2011, things had normalized a lot. You know, I remember talking to people who were in a 20 in 2009, who were like, buying buildings for 7,000 a unit. And, you know, it was crazy. I mean, th- those people made so much money because they were ready to go at the right time, right? They didn't have to build their infrastructure after that. So I tell people like, if you're really interested in making money in this business, maybe dip your toe in with a deal or two if it's really conservative, but you re- really should be focused on is getting ready for the next cycle to come. So really get educated, make your connections, you know, make connections with brokers, make connections with investors, make connections with all the people that you possibly can and, and build that infrastructure now while the chances are you're not going to be finding many deals that are good anyway, right? Use that time prov- productively to prepare for the next go round because there will be one. I mean, there, there always is, no matter how bleak things look right now, yeah. it will always be better. There's just, it's just a matter of time. Yeah. I, uh, and I talk to quite a few people all the time, same thing that, that they really are anxious to get started. And in my opinion, and this echoes what you just said, I mean, times like right now, not only is it tough to find deals, but it's really easy to mess up, right? There's just not a lot of margins. And when you're a beginner, you're going to mess up. Yeah. So are you prepared to, you know, understand that there's just not much room for error where in 2008, there's a lot of room for error. You could have overpaid, you could be a poor manager and you're still going to be able to, you, you still bought it for, for under what it was truly worth. Um, and you, you can make those mistakes and you're, you're okay. You still look pretty smart. Yeah. I mean, I think like, frankly, like I, I'm kind of living proof of that. Right. I mean, a couple of deals I bought, we just, they just, everything went wrong with them. Right. Like, and, but we were very lucky because we bought at the right time and then we were able to exit at a good price. And that's, like I said, I can't take credit for that. That's all the market's doing, but I, I, I shudder to think about somebody buying those same properties now who had as little experience as I did then right and yeah. and and then had the same stuff go wrong now i mean honestly you'd be looking at foreclosure right if that if that happened yeah so but in our case you know we bought them cheaply enough that we were able to muddle our way through on you know obviously we had a, other deals that did really really well but on those ones that did badly uh you know 
we were able to muddle through. And frankly, the ones that did well did well because we bought them so cheap. You know, we weren't like they, 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 we ran them better. Like we, we had, we did better with the underwriting. We got more things right, but also we, you know, we paid very little money for those properties because of when we bought them. And that really helps. I mean, how much your debt service costs you every month makes a huge difference to how much money you're going to make. Right. And the more you pay, and you know, the more debt service and the smaller, you know, the lower the cap rate, the less cushion you've got. So it's, you want to have those things as, you know, that cap rate cushion as high as possible and that debt service number as small as possible. And that's how you make money at the end of the day by not paying money to other people. (laughs) So, you know, yeah, so true. I mean, you, you mentioned it before people over leveraging right now and, and, you know, cause they got to make their IRR return. So they're trying to get, 75, 80% if they can, whatever they can possibly get. They're trying to get as high of leverage as, as possible uh, to make their IRR return projections. And and that uh, comes with a lot of risk when we have a market that potentially is going to be shifting. Uh, could be very soon, could, could be a few years, but um, a market that's going to be shifting and then they're, they're going in with a lot of high leverage. Um, like you said, the, the smart money right now, the big companies, I think I just heard a statistic that uh, the typical REIT right now is leveraged at about 40%. Yeah. Uh, where my guess is your typical syndication company is probably leveraged more like 70, 75%. Yeah, as much as they could get. And, yeah. you know, I, I think the other thing that too is sort of hiding in plain sight is all of the interest only debt that's floating around, right? Mm-hmm. So people are, people are bragging about, oh, I just got three years of interest only. And I even heard of one. I don't know if this is true. I heard of somebody getting a 10 year interest only loan, which I, you know, is crazy to me. Although I guess that actually sounds a little safer in some respects than a three year one, uh, just because like your debt constant isn't going to change yeah. over time. But, yeah. you know, people are like that we're, you know, in the last cycle, people were giving out money like crazy and, you know, and at the top of the market, uh, you know, investors were getting their 75% from Fannie Mae and then they were going down the block to some Mez lender and getting another 10 or or 15 and leveraging it up to like 90%. And everybody thought this was great. Like, Hey, this is how you financially engineer your returns and blah, blah, blah. And then like it all went kablooey and they couldn't make their debt service. Right. So, they so the bank said, well, you know, now you may not add any debt to this deal. It's going to violate your loan covenants. You know, on those non-recourse carve-outs, you get this non-recourse debt. But if you add any more debt to it, it becomes full recourse. Like they, the banks clamped down on that, so you couldn't leverage up as much as you did. But now the backwards way that they're doing it is they're giving they're the banks turn around and now they're giving out people you know two three years of IO in the beginning to kind of like make the numbers work. And that's yep. just like additional leverage by the back door, right? And mm-hmm. so what's gonna happen in a couple of years when those, those loans reset to fully amortizing and maybe you're in a recession now, right? So it, that's, that's a danger that I think a lot of people are also not considering. And like you said, I don't think that those, the REITs or the, like the, the institutional grade investors are, are, are doing those kinds of like financial tricks to, you know, to juice returns because they're thinking about how do we preserve capital? You know, how do we protect the assets that we've got? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, let's take a minute to thank our sponsor Pine Financial Group. Look, you work hard for your money. Is your money working hard for you? Because of inflation, money sitting idle erodes your wealth. Many investors understand that real estate is a great investment, but may not want the effort or the risk that comes with owning their own property. They want to sit back and have payments, hit their bank account each and every month. Stop eroding your wealth and start building it by asking your money to work for you. You should be earning profits while you sleep in investment backed by real estate. Pine Financial Group, the leader in hard money lending in Colorado and Minnesota, was recently approved to offer their investment publicly. 
This investment offers only for investors in Colorado and Minnesota and is only made through the investment prospectus. Get your copy today. Simply visit www.pineinvestments.com and click to get started. There's a reason why some of the wealthiest people in history invest in loans backed by real estate. Learn more about the risks and returns at www.pineinvestments.com. It's www.pineinvestments.com. I want to invite you to join us at the North Star Real Estate Conference. This conference is September 20 and 21st in Minneapolis, and it's going to be packed full of a ton of great speakers. We've got... Uh, just a, a great group of people speaking. You can look at our lineup on our website, nreconference.com, and sign up there as well. We've got an early bird special. All you need to do is type in early bird, one word, and uh, you can get $100 off. And that's good through August 10th. So make sure you sign up now. Take action. Look, people that take action and value their education are those who are going to succeed. I know there's a lot of free content. My podcast is free. There's all kinds of free content out there, maybe even free meetups that you're attending. But this conference is going to blow your socks off. This is going to be well worth the price. And all the profits go to charity. So it's definitely time to take action. Sign up now. Don't delay because the prices will go up. Um, but you know what? Every time I attend a conference, I 10x. Actually, I would say I'm more like a thousand X even my investment, a hundred, a thousand, potentially even more X my investment. I've met so many fantastic people. I've met investors at conferences. I've met potential partners at conference. I've joined mastermind groups because of conferences. So it's a ton of value. You cannot replace it. So check it out. NREconference.com. Thanks a lot. Let's shift a, a little bit to uh, ask some questions about kind of the business side. What are some things that you see maybe successful in your business or other people that you talk to um, ab about, you know, just a couple key factors about operating a business successfully? Yeah. So I think the thing that I've done much better in the last few years that I ignored in the first few years to my detriment was marketing. And I think that a lot of people, my, myself included, when they start a new business, they think, well, what have I got to market, right? Yeah. Market what? And especially I think in the syndication business, like I don't have any deals yet. I don't have anything. What do I market? Right. And, and that, that's a huge mistake. And I think like that the growth of my business, even, even in the years when I was more actively buying, had I marketed the, the, the company properly, and brought on more investors. I could have done more deals during that period of time, right? Because mm -hmm. I just didn't have enough investors in my pipeline at the time because I didn't market. I didn't know how to market. I didn't know what to do. If you look around at some of the people who have really had a lot of growth, like someone like a Joe Fairless, you know, Joe was a marketer. Joe's big advantage was that he came from a marketing background and he focused yeah. like a laser beam on marketing and, and pretty much left, you know, a lot of the other parts of the business, like the properties, actual property acquisitions and, and management to other people. So, you know, he was really able to have a lot of very fast growth because of his marketing expertise. The other thing is division of labor, right? You, you just can't do everything yourself. And, and, and I think we've got this myth of like the heroic founder, like we get because of people like Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, Bill Gates, we have this idea of like the heroic founder who like starts in a garage and builds this billion dollar company like by himself. And it's, it's, it's just a myth. Like it, nothing happens that way. You have to have right. other people helping you because nobody's good at everything. Right. So there is not a single person out there who is a superstar at, you know, at sourcing deals, at raising money, at marketing the business, you know, at, at asset management. Right. Nobody can do all those things well. But you need somebody to do them well for your company to grow. So you need to find, you know, if you're the guy who's good at raising money, you need to find like three other people to do those other three things or you're not going to grow. So I, I really encourage people to find partners to work with who have skill sets that complement theirs 
Um, and that's, you know, something I'm working on too, because I've, I've done this by myself and I, I realized like the limits of my own ability to grow the company just on my own. So what, that's one of the things I'm working on for sort of round two is like, okay, identifying those people that have the skill sets that I lack or, or, you know, enjoy doing the stuff that I don't like to do so that every all the different components get done well by somebody who likes to do them that's kind of like the ideal situation i think if you get that then you can really have faster growth than if you try to do it all on your own yeah that's it's those two that you mentioned is pretty funny because that's that's right where i am too i mean i i didn't think marketing just to me just first of all like you said what what do i have to market and second of all it's, it's not really important to me. I'm just buying real estate. Like, what do I need to market for? I'm buying properties and I don't need to let people know. People would ask me before, like, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I just, you know, just some real estate stuff. Oh, okay. You know, I didn't barely say anything about it and didn't, didn't want really people to know um, until I had a paradigm shift with like, wait a second, if I want to truly grow, people need to know what I'm doing. Um, and same thing with the division of labor, you know, you, you try to be, you, you're, you can do everything, at least me, like I can do it all, like, but right. you find that your, for one, your brain is scrambled, uh, and you're missing things. You're always forgetting about doing something or finishing a task, or, you know, you just can't concentrate that much on everything. And you end up being instead of good, really, really good or great at something, you end up being just average or below average at everything. And you really don't grow that way. Yeah. And I think it's, it's even worse. I mean, I think you, you know, speaking for myself, like tend to focus on the stuff you like doing and and avoid the other things. Right. And so you might even put yourself in a situation you're really neglecting stuff that you, that you need to focus on. And it's very difficult to focus on, focus on things that you don't like. And I think it's all, I think also one of the reasons that people don't necessarily like find, find partners or delegate is because they find it hard to imagine that there are people who like the stuff that they don't like. <laughs> right. True. But, it, but, but there are, there are yeah. people out there who love doing the stuff that you can't stand and you need to, I think successful company owners come to that. Like they are able to make that mental shift where they can hand off stuff to people who, who are good at it and, and just let them run it. Right. And, and then, and focus on the stuff that you're good at yourself. You know, I have to say just back to the marketing point, I just have to tell you when I first started with my first partner, she went and found like a social media person, you know, we had a marketing and I, I, I was like, this is ridiculous. What do we need? Like somebody's going to, you know, join our platform because, uh, because they saw a Facebook post. Well, like little did I know that that's, you know, people would do exactly that. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's like just the beginning of a relationship, but it, they still, they come in the funnel that way. So, you know, I have to like apologize seven years late for, to my old partner for like <laughs> the idea that we, that we needed a, you know, a marketing person on the team. In fact, that was somebody that we really needed very badly. Yeah. Um, but it was all because of my, frankly, I think insecurity thinking about like, well, market what like who's gonna who's gonna join up with us because of you know we're just starting out but i think like you almost have to just ignore that and and how it may feel uncomfortable but i think there's not a business out there that succeeded without marketing itself well but they you just you're just like hey this is what we do and like you know if you gotta you gotta kind of like grow into what you're claiming you can do you know so, because yeah. if you wait to be ready to start marketing, like you'll never get there. So, yeah, absolutely. I just had a conversation with actually somebody today, very similar about that. It wasn't about multifamily. It's about another business that they've got going, but they're very, very well educated and they want to uh, build this business and they know what they're doing. And they were talking about marketing and advertising on it. And they said, well, you know, when, when should I actually get started doing it? I said, months ago like what are you waiting yeah. for are do you know what you're doing do you know what this business is about yeah 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 okay well then what are you waiting for people don't need you 
to have thousands of clients before they want to be your client. They want somebody that they know, like, and trust, and that they understand knows the business and is out for their best interest. Are you, is that you? Yeah. Okay. Then start marketing now. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's just really powerful advice. Yeah. Um, well, give us a mistake that you've made in, in business and how have you learned from that? Gosh, they're too, they're too many to count. I mean, I've already, I've already, the, you know, not marketing was a really yeah. big one. Yeah. I think, um, I think also, and, and I, frankly, I think this is something that probably every syndicator has got to go through, especially if they're self-taught. I mean, if you're, I would encourage people to really think about hiring an underwriter early or, you know, you know, you can, you can hire people on a one-off deal to, to underwrite deals for you relatively cheaply. And I think it's not a bad idea because if you don't really, really know underwriting yourself and you're trying to sort of teach yourself as you go, I think there's a lot of room for error there. And, you know, so I definitely made like on my first deal, I made every mistake I could think of on that, you know, just in the assumptions I was making, like assuming that the cost structure that the seller had was going to be the same cost structure that I had. Right. So I, I, overpaid for that deal because I, you know, I assumed too little for insurance and I assumed too little for labor and I assumed too little for pretty much everything, you know, yeah. because I just thought that very easy to that's, do. that's what it costs to run this property. So that's what's going to cost me to run this property. Right. Not true at all. So you really have to, you know, you know learning to underwrite is a really important thing, I think, for people in this business. And if you don't want to do it or you can't, then find somebody else who can do it and, and likes to do it and you know, yeah. wants to do it and will yeah. do it well. Well, and, and you know, one thing that people need to understand is if you're doing a value add property, there's maybe it might be that they're, they're running their expenses really high, but a lot of times if we're trying to, especially if we're trying to increase rents, we're trying to increase that revenue. Um, their expenses maybe weren't enough. They maybe weren't spending enough on maintenance and repairs to keep the property up. They maybe weren't spending enough money on marketing um, to keep getting new tenants in at the higher prices. And so you might have to add some dollars to some of those, you know, bottom line things. And all of a sudden your expenses are going up where the broker is trying to tell you one of the expenses, you can keep them the same. Um, in reality, if you're trying to increase the value of the property and, and what tenants are willing to pay, you're going to have to increase your services. Yeah. And especially if you're buying from, you know, I think you know, one of the things I always used to say was, oh, I you know, want to buy these mom and pop deals mm -hmm. because they're, they're under managed. And that may be true, but you also like, along with what you're saying, like if you're, if you're then bringing in professional third party management company, chances are you're going to be paying a lot more for labor yeah. because First of all, the mom and pops are doing a lot of that themselves. Yeah. But the other thing is that they're very often not hiring the best people and they're not paying them any benefits at all. And when you, when you then switch to a professional management company, you know, they're, they're looking to hire the best people in the yeah. business, right? So yeah. they're paying more money to get good people. They're giving them benefits because that's what the market requires. And now all of a sudden, you know, you think you're going to manage this property for $100,000 a payroll. And in reality, it's going to be $170,000 of payroll, right? Yeah. So it's, you have to really understand that. And you really got to, you know, you've got to, I, I just think you should always just assume whatever, how, whatever the owner is paying, you're going to pay more, yeah. like whatever it is. And as you spot one of the situations where it's, and every once in a while you see this, but it's really rare. We're like, you know, it's, it's like a hundred unit property and they've got five leasing agents. Right. And, and like, they're all sitting around doing nothing like that, that happens, but not that much. Not right? that often. No, yeah. you, usually it's the opposite. Yeah. Um, well, I've got like a million more questions we could ask, but we're running up on time. Uh, I'd love to do maybe another episode possibly in the future where we talk about uh, more about the, uh, the economy and philosophies behind there. That'd be really fun. I yeah, think, well, uh, anytime. We both have podcasts, so I think our both of our listeners would be intrigued in something like that. So, um, I got a couple more questions for you, though. First of all, what's a favorite book? 
Oh, gosh. Uh, so if you want to read a really just great book about investing in general, and it's, it's influenced me a lot, uh, there's the book Irrational Exuberance by Robert Schiller. He's the guy behind the Case-Shiller Housing Index and also the CAPE Index, which measures stocks. And he writes about financial bubbles in that book. And it's really, really, it's, it's an amazing book. If, you, if you're interested in markets, you have to read that book. Cool. Um, the last question or second to last question is what are your three pillars of wealth creation? My three pillars of wealth creation. Well, I'd have to say, uh, in terms of building a business, if you, you know, if you want to build a business, I think if you want to build wealth, you have to build a business, right. It's of some kind, like you can't save your way to wealth really. Like you've got to, you've got to invest or you've got to build a business. So that being said, like, I think you have to go back to, well, how do you build a business? You've got to have the right butts in the right seats, right? That's one. You've got to market your business, right? And I think the third pillar is that you just got to persevere through tough times because they're going to come. You know, you have to, you can't get discouraged early because frankly, when you're starting out is the most discouraging time because you don't know what you're doing. Right. So you're going to get hit, hit upside the head with a lot of stuff you didn't expect and you just got to fight your way through it. Yeah. Yeah. That last one's powerful. That, and so true. Uh, it's not all roses, even though uh, it sounds like it sometimes on these podcasts where people are talking about their business and their successes and you're going, man, that's what I want to do. I can do that. And you know, we we mentioned some mistakes that you've made along the way, but um, we didn't dig in deep into a lot of those mistakes and, and really how much growing pains there has been throughout the business. And I'm assuming you're just like me. Uh, you've had a lot of trials and tribulations, a lot of times where it would have been easier to give up than to, than to keep on pushing along the way. Well, listen, I, I have to say, like, if you – went back and listened to like a podcast interview I did back in like 2014, you know, I, I, I probably would have told you something like, this is a lot easier than I thought it was going to be, you know, because it's easy to go buy deals, right? You can go buy deals. That's the easy part, right? Then it's the stuff that you start getting whacked upside the head with, which is like, once you've got the deals and you're running them, all the stuff that comes out of left field to like, really like, you know, undermine the amount of money you thought you were going to make. Right. So, um, and, and you have to, so I, I feel like I look at my own progression, like it's very typical. I was a newbie. I thought I knew everything. Yeah. I thought I had it all figured out. And, and then I started getting like hit really badly with stuff. And that's when I really started learning. And now I feel like it's funny. I feel like I have a lot less confidence in the business than I did when I started out right now, which is probably a good thing because now I think I'm a lot more cautious, a lot more, uh, I'm really going to like turn over a lot more stones. Yeah. You're a lot more realistic. Yeah. Look at things more deeply now than I did when I started out and, and really like make sure that a deal is buttoned up before I get into it. So I think like my ability to protect against the downside has gotten much better because I just know more. Right. And I've been through more, but I think you kind of have to go through that. You got to go through that, that phase of like thinking that you're the greatest (laughs) thing since sliced bread. And then, and then you get some reality kicking you in the teeth and then, that's when you start to, to learn for real. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so very last question, how can our listeners get in touch with you? So there's a few ways. Uh, if you're not a member of my Facebook group, that's one of the best ways to get in touch with me and, and yeah. kind of build a relationship. It's called the Multifamily Investment Community on Facebook. We've got over 6,000 members now and, and growing very fast. So it's a great place to to get to know me and also meet a lot of other fellow investors who have a lot of knowledge to share with you. So that's, that's one. Um, if you want to join my mailing list, I, I send out pretty much a daily email on you know, investment tips and sort of my thoughts on things. Uh, the way to join that is to go and get my free download, which is the ultimate checklist to doing syndication deals. And you can find that at multifamilylaunchpad.org slash ultimate dash checklist. It's a little unwieldy, but multifamilylaunchpad.org, not .com, slash ultimate hyphen checklist. And you can download that for free. And it's, it's like an 11-page checklist of pretty much everything I could possibly think of that you need to do 
to syndicate a deal. Awesome. Well, good. Great information. Um, well, Jonathan, I, I definitely appreciate you joining us on the show. A um, lot, of, lot of good stuff there. So I definitely appreciate the time you're able to spend with us. Well, thank you for having me on the show and I'm happy to come back anytime. Awesome. Take care. Thank you. Hey everyone, John Stiles here with Bridge Realty. I'm filling in for Todd Dexheimer today as he's out spending time with his family. I believe he's camping and uh, so that's great for him. So anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode. We really appreciate Jonathan Twombly for taking the time to share all of his many insights on investing in apartment buildings. And as Todd always encourages us to do, we want to just take note of a couple of highlights from today's show so that you can truly benefit from the time you spent listening to it. So for me, I have the following three takeaways. Number one, be flexible and respond to where the market is going. So obviously nobody can exactly predict what's going to happen next in the real estate market. There's a lot of pundits saying this and saying that, and a lot of people worried about what if this is going to happen. So not to be uh, worried or, or act out of fear, but it is important to look at the signs and take them into consideration, you know, take into consideration employment, take into consideration uh, vacancy, take into consideration affordability, all these different signs, you can make judgments based on them. And especially this is important if you are using other people's money, if you have investors in your deals, you really, it's, it's important. You have a fiduciary duty to make wise decisions with their investments. So, um, be flexible with your business plan and respond to what the market is doing. The, the second thing that I took from this episode is don't think that you can build a great business all by yourself. Find partners and team members that can complement your strengths. So this can be really difficult for entrepreneurial-minded people like myself who want to just take matters into their own hands and get things done the way they want to get them done. But obviously, we are all limited in our skills, our abilities, and even, you know, just the availability of our time. If we really want to go the distance with our business, then we need to bring on team members who are more skilled than we are. And the final takeaway that I have from this episode is don't wait to start marketing your business. Don't wait for perfection in your business. Uh, you need to just identify the value that you are bringing to the marketplace and start sharing it. You can always evolve and change your message as your product or service is refined, but start to get the word out there so that people can know that you exist. So again, these are a couple of my takeaways from this episode. I, I hope that you also uh, benefited and, and got some value out of listening to this. Uh, why don't you take a moment to go to our YouTube video or our Facebook page and just share what your thoughts and takeaways are so that we can all benefit from that as well. So you can find us, of course, pillars of wealth creation. And so until next time, as Todd always says, make every day a Saturday. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. A couple things before we go again, go on to our Facebook page, pillars of wealth. We'd love to have you on there. Go on to iTunes, give us a rating and review and subscribe to the show. Also, um, you know, don't forget, reach out to me if you want any help with uh, potentially growing your business and reach out to John Styles to help you buy or sell real estate. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Have a fantastic the rest of the day. And as I say, make every day a Saturday.